Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. I feel like it's always personal because, you know, as an actor, you're sharing so much of yourself. I think that's why people connect to actors so much. And as much as I value actors and think it's a beautiful craft, it's also we're still clowns at the same time, you know. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of In the Envelope. It is a new year. It is 2022. 2022. Um, and I am still your host, Jack, here to bring you interviews from the front lines of awards races, inside actors and artists' processes. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. It's a new year. It's a new me. It's a new podcast. And I could not be more thrilled to start off this year with this special episode featuring the one and only Alia Shawkat, whose voice you just heard. Um, I've been a big fan of Alia's for a long time. and. I can't. I feel like almost on more of an instinctual level. And now speaking here, this interview that you're about to hear, it kind of proved why. She's a riveting actor, uh, on especially on Search Party, which we got into. Search Party uh, has aired for five tumultuous, hilarious seasons, first on TBS and then on HBO Max. And the final season drops tomorrow, January 7th. I will definitely be tuning in. It's a fascinating series to talk about that she stars on and produces. But it's also an exciting time for Alia because she appears in Aaron Sorkin's Being the Ricardos, playing a real person from Hollywood history, Madeline Pugh, one of the writers of I Love Lucy. This is opposite, of course, Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball, a film that I really, really loved. One of my favorites going into 2022 film award season. It, here, it, here it is, guys. Here we, here we are. Here we are in 2022 film award season, whether I am ready for it or not. Stay tuned next week because the SAG Award nominations will be announced on January 12th. We will be dropping an episode on January 13th. And uh, I have all my fingers and toes crossed for, I mean, a lot of our recent guests that are SAG Award nominees, but really with that, I mean, SAG Award contenders, but that, that eligibility window is anyone who appeared in pretty much anything in 2021. So... Go back and listen to our episodes for all of 2021, and pretty much all of the actors featured on that show could be up for a SAG award, and uh, I'm just so excited. I can't believe we're already there. Part of me is not ready. Part of me is more than ready. And the same goes for 2022. So happy new year to you, listener, and get ready for an exciting crop of interviews, of deep dive interviews on your favorite actorly podcast. Let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsor and then get to this lovely episode with Alia Shawkat. Alia, if you are listening, thank you for joining us. 
for your consideration, and just like that, a new chapter of the groundbreaking HBO series Sex and the City, which finds Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte navigating the complicated reality of friendship, family, and New York. Watch the new series The Chicago Sun-Times calls a smart, layered, and insightful gem with excellent performances from Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon, and Kristen Davis. And Just Like That is now streaming on HBO Max. Award-winning actor and artist Alia Shawkat broke out in Hollywood as a teenager on State of Grace and as Maybe Funky on Arrested Development, so challenging both the industry's tendency to pigeonhole actors and herself as an artist has been a central part of her mission. The SAG Award nominee has starred on and produced the TBS to HBO mystery series Search Party for five hilarious seasons, and now appears in Aaron Sorkin's Being the Ricardos as I Love Lucy writer Madeline Pugh. Here is the phenomenal Alia Shawkat. So we are backstage. We are all about the craft and career advice. And I want to ask you about Search Party and I want to ask you about being the Ricardos. Congratulations on these amazing projects. But we always start at the beginning. What What is the beginning of your acting journey? Why Why acting? Were you bit by the bug? Yeah. Um, well, when I was, I think I was six, um, I was watching that show, All That, which was like a kid's SNL. <laughs> um, and I think they, they rebooted it. But um I loved it so much. And that was my earliest memory. I just remember watching it and having this feeling like I could do that. I wasn't necessarily like a class clown, but I kind of was. I was like a goofy kid, but I just had this like weird confidence when I was young that I've been trying to get back ever since um, that I just kind of was like, I can do that. So I told my mom and she tried to wait it off for a while by um, getting me involved until just like modeling locally in the desert and I did that for a couple of years and I still didn't like it I was like no 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 I want to be on TV um mm-hmm. and my mom was like well to be on TV you need to get an agent and that's in LA and I was like well get me an agent in LA so that's how <laughs> the story goes um my mom says and then I auditioned like a cattle call you know for a manager and then audition for an agent. And then I just kind of started auditioning and working right away. But yeah, my memory of it as a kid was so uncomplicated. Um, it was just very, it made sense to me. I didn't have an idea that I was going to do it for a career or necessarily some crazy passion. I just was like, I want to do this and I know I'm good at it. Um, and that's just kind of how it started. And then it just kind of, you know, snowballed from there and Every, I would say, seven to ten years or so since I've been doing it now for 20 years, um, or maybe even less, every like five to seven years, I have like a new awakening about it and I question it all over again. And, oh, sure. And then I, I, I keep falling back in love with it. So. And that's the key is that you have to keep falling back in love or, or the answer keeps being yes, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember when I was 17 um, almost 18, I had finished Arrested Development and mm-hmm. I couldn't get hired. Like every audition I was going out for was for some sassy teenager. And I was just like, I already did this, but a much better, you know, much more well-written version. And um, my agents who at the time weren't really getting back to me were like, 
well, the feedback is that you don't seem like you want to be there. That's what the casting directors are saying. And I was like, well, I kind of don't. Um, So I kind of had a moment. I didn't really work for like a year. I lived in New York and I thought I would do theater. And it just, yeah, you have to keep falling in love with it and, and also decide how involved you're going to be. Are you just going to keep going on auditions and just hope for the best? Are you going to get more involved? Are you going to be more specific about what you want to do? So yeah, just every now and then I've just, I have to like kind of wake myself up and be like, why am I doing this? Cause it's definitely not an easy career <laughs> to trust. Exactly. Well, and that's exactly what we love hearing about is how I'm going to ask you about your, you know, worst auditions and all of that. But it's so cool to hear this idea of like every five years or so you have to almost not necessarily reinvent yourself. Although I do think the life of an artist or maybe particularly an actor, you are able to reinvent yourself. Like as a teenager or getting those teenage roles, you were able to be like, well, I'd rather not play that. Let's go find some other kind of role. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To a degree, you know, it's like, I think that to be an actor, you have to, you know, every human has an ego and you have to have a delicate relationship with your ego and knowing your value versus thinking you're too good for certain things. So when I was younger, it definitely, my ego was, was fluffing up. You know, my buddy, Michael Sarah was doing Juno and Superbad at the time. And I remember being like, well, I can't get hired. Like what's going on? Like, why can't I, aren't I a movie star? Um, and I kind of was, you know, kind of jealous. And I was like, oh, I'm, you know, this isn't for me. Everybody wants me to be a certain type of kind of girl. And it just didn't feel right to me. And then I remember this movie, this audition came across called uh, Whip It, um, the Drew Barrymore yeah. roller derby movie. And when I got that, I was like, oh, I really want this again. Because I was kind of thinking, you know, I'm still young. I have some money from child acting. Maybe I'll try something else. And when I got that audition, I just got excited again. And I was like, oh, I want this. And I worked really hard at the audition. You know, I memorized the lines. I really rehearsed. And I just came in with, like, so much energy. And then so when I got that, it kind of kick-started the second round of my my passion for it again. That's awesome. Because that is that's, that's such a key piece of advice. You do have to want it, right? <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And and it's hard because yeah, you want it, and then you you know it's it's healthy. I think to have inspiration from other people's careers, but there are not there are no two careers alike, you know. So it's like the way you, people start is different. The way people maintain is different. The way people are um, happy doing it. You know, I know some people who work all the time, but they're not happy necessarily. And then some people who don't work so much, but they still love it. Um, but yeah, you just can't give up. You have to just like really keep trying because there's so many waves. I mean, me and my mom watch movies and she's always like, well, that actor stopped. I don't know what happened to him. You know, he disappeared for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's always these, we have these narratives of, of actors from the outside when we don't see them for a while. And we're like, well, that doesn't mean they're not trying. You know, who knows totally. what happened? There's just like, there's a timing and a luck to this and then just perseverance. Yeah, and having other interests, right? Like, I know that you you do not just act. I'm wondering how intentional it is that you pursue your other interests. I know you're also a visual artist. Yeah, it's it's very important to me. I don't think I realized how much so until now. Um, when that year I was talking about when I was 18, I moved to New York and I was dating someone and I was really like losing steam with acting And that's when I started painting and I was painting all the time and it just felt like a great way to express myself without having or needing permission from someone else to let me do my craft. I was alone, um, just me and my body, you know, and expressing unconscious ideas. So, you know, I've been doing that now for about 
you know, almost 15 years and it's become a huge part of my life. And I have a studio that I go to. So every time I'm not shooting, I can start to get back in the hang of that. But yeah, I think it's really important because if you put too much pressure on anything, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it can smell your desperation. So it helps me to, to release things elsewhere, especially because it takes a lot of people and a lot of money and a lot of timing and all these things to, to get a movie or a television or any kind of project made. It's both an outlet and it's that, like you're saying, that means of empowering yourself and reminding yourself, like, you have control, you have agency. And I think that's where I have to ask you about auditions. What is your what is your philosophy around auditions? I'm sure it's changed over the years, like you're saying, like your attitude about acting has changed over the years. But like, what's the audition philosophy or audition advice? Well, you know, it's tricky because I have a younger brother who's starting to get into acting now. And, you know, I found out, you know, through friends of mine who are casting directors and just people I know that it's all on tape now, which is interesting because I used to love going in. I used to hate putting myself on tape. And I know some people who are the opposite. They love being able to create their own space and do as many takes. Whereas I'm more like I I need the energy of being in the room, Mm -hmm. the nervous energy and like the kind of one shot, you know, like I really love that. I mean, the, the only advice I could really give is like kind of basic. It's like always have your lines memorized. And not all the time did I, but I feel like any of the ones I got, I always had it memorized because it helps so much to be able to take a note, go back, do it again. And you're not flustered and you're not holding a piece of paper and you're not looking down. And it seems simple, but sometimes it's hard. You get an audition like a day before sometimes, you know, but the most important, I think it's like really just memorize it, like just swallow those words so you can be loose and really look at the people because it's not, it's not about getting it perfectly right in audition. There's an essence and um, an opportunity, like uh, they just have to know that, that, that you can carry whatever they might throw at you, you know, like, oh, there's, there's an opportunity here. This, this person can, can take this and run with it, you know? But yeah, it's like to be relaxed and prepared. That's it. Because once you're in there, you're either the right type or you're not, you know, and it's not your fault. You could be the most prepared and kill the audition. And I've done that, you know, several times where I felt like, oh, that was my best audition ever. And I still didn't get it, you know? But that casting director saw me for something else. Or, you know, someone saw that tape, uh, another creator. I mean, that's how I got Arrested Development. I, I auditioned for several sitcoms that I did not get. And Mitch Hurwitz randomly saw my tape for something else he was working on. And he said, that's maybe, that's, I, I want to see that girl. So wow. it's like, you really never know. And you have to kind of give that trust where you're like, yeah, it might not be this one that I keep thinking, if I don't get this, I'm quitting, you know? And it's like, <laughs> stuff comes back around. It really does. And that's maybe part of the like, because we also, of course, ask about how to how to deal with that rejection. Like you're saying, sometimes you give the best audition ever and it's something you really wanted and you don't get it. Have you had to develop like a, I don't know, a, how to deal with rejection? It goes back to everything you're saying about like, go make a painting and <laughs> know that that tape could be seen by Mitch Hurwitz. Like... <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You have to, because it's hard. I mean, even now, you know, I've been working more and I think from different people's perspectives, I might have made it, you know, but then from another perspective, I'm still a struggling actor to a degree. You know what I mean? So it's like everyone has different perspectives um, and everyone's in a different position of this like weird, you know, Jenga of a career. It's, It's so strange, the idea of what success is. But yeah, you have to just like reconnect with yourself and be like, uh, it's, I'm not only as good as the last thing I did <laughs> and yeah, maybe I haven't worked in a little while, but I just have to believe I'm going to work and the right projects are going to come. And it's like, 
it, it really is kind of like, you know, like Christmas where it's like all of a sudden you just get a script and you're like, I am right for this one. You know, like I, I am like, finally, I'm right for this one. Like there's a timing to everything because you have to hit a certain level of your career where people start writing parts for you, you know, where people sure. are like, oh, this is a, you know, Kate Blanchett is going to have offers for the rest of her life as she should. Um, but it, that's, that's not the case for every actor. So you kind of just have to kind of do a waiting game. And yeah, in your meantime, take care of yourself. So you're like just ready to go when the opportunity comes. Totally. Is that is that the goal? Like a Kate Blanchett level of uh, established? Is that your artistic? I'd love to ask for what your artistic mission is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I mean, again, every career is so different. And sometimes I, you know, when I'm really in myself, I'm like, no one will have the career I have. So in some ways, yeah, Kate Blanchett, Tilda Swinton, these kind of actresses who work mm-hmm. with the best you know, auteurs of our time and they work all over the country. I mean, all over the world and they play such different characters. There's a part of me that would love to have that. But then I also am a writer and want to be directing more and creating my own shows. So in that way, you know, um, that's also a different kind of career path, you know, but even like, you know, Isabella Rossellini who makes such interesting, like weird theater projects on her own where she's doing like you know, the green porno, I don't know if you've seen that. Um, totally. You know, so she's doing such weird art, but then, you know, all of a sudden is going to pop up in like 30 Rock and do like an arc, you know, and it just <laughs> seems like those actors are responding to the pieces. They're like, this seems fun and this seems good for me in my life to do right now instead of trying to maintain validity and be like, I'm here, I'm still working. Um, you know, so I, yeah, I would love that just to be able to have like, you know, steady career doing cool, cool, weird shit. That's. But also this thing of type, like, it sounds like you also do not want, like you're saying about maybe, maybe Funky, maybe put you in a typecasting lane for a while. And you also want to be able to be eclectic, like these actresses you're mentioning. And I think that, you know, that comes back to the difference between ego and self-worth, you know, when you have security, cause this is like the least secure job ever. And everybody's poking holes and everybody wants to be an actor. So it's like you sometimes have these moments where you're like, there's not enough. And then you have to switch your mindset, you know, which is like a spiritual practice anyways, to be like, there's more than enough. And Mm. I'm going to, you know, find my way. And yeah, I definitely don't want to be cast as the same kind of droll, you know, comedic, whatever. (laughs) Um, But also I think you know, at the sec, now I feel like I'm at like a third stage where I'm at the point where I go, Oh, I really want to make my own stuff. Um, especially with television. I've been on so many TV shows and I've loved it and I've been more involved the more shows I've been on. And now I'm like, Oh, I'm ready to make my own. Um, and yeah, I really want to get into writing stuff and producing friends ideas and you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, of course, still working with very different, interesting directors. (laughs) That's so awesome. Yeah, so I guess that's where I got to ask you about Search Party because, of course, on Search Party, you are a producer. Um, I feel like there's so much to talk about with this show. But first off, like, I'd love I, I love having actors describe their characters. And with Dory Seif, I guess she you would describe her differently each season. Like, wh- how, how did you build this character at the beginning and then how has she evolved? Well, yes, I, I don't think... A- uh, any of us knew that we would get five seasons. Um, I don't even know if we thought we'd get a first season after we shot the pilot. So when we were making the show, we had no sense of, you know, where it was going. 
And then after we finished the first season and, you know, I was so proud of how it turned out, I think we were even like, and that's that, that's Search Party. You know, that's the beginning and that's the end. And then when we got a second season, the creators who are so amazing, Charles Rogers and Sarah Viola Bliss, did such a brilliant job of being like, this is an opportunity to carry the same story, but start to reinvent a character. Um, mm. And so they just doubled down on that every season exponentially. Um, yeah. So, yeah, when we started, Dory was like, I would say, this kind of wallflower who just really desperately wanted to be of value and feel like she had purpose in her life, like most, you know, millennials or anyone of that age. And she found a passion and attached herself to it and thought that she was what she was doing in finding Chantal was going to um, save her and help her find out who she actually was. And then, you know, by the end of that first season, you realize it was all kind of in her head, <laughs> but yeah. not in a, like it was all a dream kind of way, but in a like, oh, she misinterpreted everything. And, and I think they, they did a really good job with the show and the tone that you really are on board with Dory. You really think what Dory's thinking. And um, mm. I think that's a really refreshing take on a comedy mystery is that my character didn't seem like the fool. You know, um, she really seemed like the the leader, the one who really had it together, mm. the one that everyone could connect to. And you're like, oh, actually, she doesn't know. Shit. Um, and then, yeah. And then, I mean, gosh, the, by the time now where we are, Dory has died and come back to life. <laughs> um, you know, she, she went to trial for killing someone. She got off. She became a famous maniac, um, kind of evil. She killed somebody else. Um, you know, she's done a lot of messy things. I'm kind of hopping around now. But um, yeah, so then by the time, you know, fifth season, we see her, she died, came back to life, and now she's enlightened. And she feels that she has the answers and wants to save the world. I mean, I cannot wait. That sounds so epic. And how, what is your role and how does being a producer play into that? Like, are they two completely separate hats? You're playing Dory, but then as a producer, maybe you're thinking about Dory and how she fits into the big picture. You know, on, on this show, what I discovered was that by being a producer, I just was uh, very involved creatively all across the board. So mm -hmm. it's more just like my voice is always heard. Um, even when they're writing the show, I, I come into the writer's room a couple of times to kind of speak, you know, to hear what's going on and then kind of, speak as Dory, not like I'm in character, but like trying to clarify her, um, her character arc as much as possible and try to just ground it and, you know, help with some ideas that might specify it and let them know, you know, once I know the idea of the season, I kind of give them some ideas of how I think Dory would react to things just to like specify it. So the journey, each move and each turn, uh, makes sense to me and therefore grounds the piece as much as possible. Um, and then when we're on set, yeah, it's from something like helping with the blocking and, you know, figuring out scenes and uh, to also sometimes, you know, getting on the first AD's ass being like, we got to go, we got to get this. You know, I just feel more involved, like it's just more precious to me. Um, and I, I, I'm not as like, not that actors are checked out, but I'm not like, yeah, yeah, just let me know what's going on. You know, I, I just like to kind of know what's happening. And also, I think it's all been in somewhat preparation for, you know, the stuff I want to make in the future. I just I, I want to know every job and how it's done and how what's happening. And um, and yeah, just just being really involved, you know, and Charles and Espy have always been so we're really like all partners in this. You know, it's it's mm. there's never a hierarchy on our side. 
Well, and you mentioned that it, one thing you particularly want to make is TV. And like you've touched on this idea of, of course, you guys don't know it's going to go for five seasons and it evolves over time. Like, I guess it's both actor and producer. How does this character construction process, this conception of somebody like Dory, like compare to other characters you've played? Or what, what is it that you want to take from this into future projects? Well, on a, as, on a personal note, as, as Alia, the actor, the producer on this show, it's taught me so much. Like, I mean, confidence isn't even like a strong enough word. It's made me, you know, feel really actualized as an artist. When I go onto that set, I feel very seen and appreciated and it's really fun. And every scene we're doing, I'm excited to shoot. There's never a scene where I'm like, eh, this thing. So I feel, yeah, I just feel really activated and I've, I've learned so much on that because it's also somewhat of a scrappy shoot. You know, it's, it's not the mm. easiest show to make. Uh, we don't have that much money and, you know, there's not enough time, which there never is on any shoot. But mm. it's definitely not like a sit back and we're in our big trailers kind of thing. You know, it's like it, we're very, we're all really involved and in just trying to get this shot and like tell this story. So I, I've learned a lot about just how to make in, a, you know, with with not a lot. Um, and then, hmm. yeah, I mean, playing Dory has been, you know, one of the greatest gifts of, of my career, for sure. Um, she's always made sense to me, maybe just because she's obviously a part of me. <laughs> um, but it's always a nice feeling, even though she, her character changes so much season to season, I still show up on set and I know who she is. Um, and I feel like when you're doing new jobs or you're doing films, so you're kind of hopping around, you know, sometimes you have moments where you're like, oh, I didn't have time to prepare enough. I don't really know what she would do in this situation. Um, and with Dory, I, it's gotten to a point where I already know, even if they change something last minute, I, I would be like, no, she would never do that. Or no, she would never wear that. Or like, yeah, she would like, you know, so I, I just feel like she's really like in my bones. Um, so it got fun to be able to be like, oh, I'm just like, I know this girl, you know? That's really cool, but it's also like a little eerie because she she's a she's a little bit of a scary character. Yes, <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> Have I killed? If you? you know her really well, but see, this is where like we don't get we don't we don't like to get too personal on this podcast. However, in speaking about character construction, I mean, you mentioned that she always makes sense to you. Are are these years like your you know your years in New York of searching for purpose? How much of your personal life are you borrowing for somebody like Dory? Well, I haven't killed anyone if that's what you're asking. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, to get in, I mean, this is an acting podcast, to get into a little bit of my method, if you will. Um, yes, yes. I find I, I always, it's always personal to me, anyone I play. So the circumstances are obviously different, the specifics of what I'm doing. But I'm always asking myself, my unconscious, my, um, the underneath, <laughs> what's happening underneath, why has this part come to me? Um, why am I meant mm. to play this person? What in me needs to come out in this character? Um, mm. it, whether it's something from the past or something presently I'm working on, I always find that it's somehow helping me work through something in myself. So, you know, with Dory, you know, obviously it's not that I was like, oh yeah, like that one time I buried a body. It's like, Oh, what have I been hiding in myself that I'm scared for people to see? Or um, there was a, you know, when she was kidnapped, I was noticing there were several jobs I, had, I was doing a couple of years ago where I was getting kidnapped. And then I was getting sent auditions to be kidnapped again. Mm. I remember when I was working on it, I was like, what 
is this? Why am I getting kidnapped all the time? And I, so I really do believe that, that like, there's a reason why parts come to you. And that was a cycle after the end of search party. I was like, I have to break. I was like, I no longer can be kidnapped. I, I no longer can be kidnapping a, a, a part of myself um, that I keep locked up or whatever that is, you know? And then even like with this season, it's like, she's enlightened, she's connected. It's like, sure. Connecting to this sense that I know what I'm doing. And then mm. maybe taking that too far sometimes, or just like my hubris getting the best of me. Um, but yeah, I think, I feel like it's always personal because, you know, as an actor, you're sharing so much of yourself. I think that's why people connect to actors so much. And as much as I value actors and think it's a beautiful craft, it's also, we're still clowns at the same time, you know? So yeah. all the importance that's put on acting as this craft, I, I totally agree. But then on the other, the flip side, I'm like, well, we're just acting, you know, like, come on. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's like a delicate balance, but anyways, it, it's always, yeah, it's always, it's always personal for me. I, I think it's always, um, it's always some kind of message, whatever parts come across your desk. Yeah, and it is something about the universe and what what is the universe trying to tell you. I've never quite heard it, heard it put this way, this idea of asking yourself or asking almost the script, like, why are we telling this story right now? Why am I the person mm. telling this? And whatever answer you come up with, that then is your schematic for the care. That's your blueprint, right? Totally, yeah. And it's a really strong um, kind of method that I've used. You know, the specifics change, but it's uh, something I've used for a long time and it really... It helps make sense so it's not something I'm necessarily rehearsing how I sound and what I'm doing with my hands. I'm more just like actually mm-hmm. living it, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it sounds more um, unconscious, more instinctive than it's method in that way and it's not method in the way of constructing a lock and an accent and a, what you're doing with your hands. I love that. For your awards consideration, Succession, the HBO original drama praised by Vulture as the best show on TV. Season 3 finds Waystar Roy Co. CEO Logan Roy in a perilous position, scrambling to secure familial, political, and financial alliances as tensions rise and a bitter corporate battle threatens to turn into a family civil war. Hailed by the Chicago Sun-Times for being wickedly funny and wildly entertaining, and Vulture for being ferociously acted, Succession is now streaming on HBO Max. I really think it's a great point, not just on Search Party, but kind of for anything, that like at the end of the day, you guys are having fun. Acting is supposed to be fun. And you mentioned earlier the ideal set is like a positive one. How much of that are you thinking of like drama versus comedy? On a show like Search Party especially, are those two different ingredients you're trying to mix? Or is it all kind of of a piece? Search Party is very particular in the sense that it it really is such a mix. So, you know, in season four, it was definitely, I was carrying a lot more dramatic, you know, weight that season. I was kidnapped. It was like really intense. But at the same time, every scene has a moment for comedy. So mm-hmm. um, Search Party has also, you know, I've learned so much from that about carrying uh, tone. Um, Search Party has such a specific tone that when we were making the first season, we were like, does this make sense? Like, does this track? Because I'm playing it like dead serious. And, you know, John Early's being like hilarious, but kind of over the top. And we're like, where do these characters meet? And then when we saw it, we're like, oh, they meet in Search Party world, which is our own. And in this world, all these things exist, you know, and then we're able to really play because we're like the the walls are huge um, and they're kind of bouncy. So all the ideas kind of come back. Um, 
So, so yeah, I, I don't think we look at it as drama and comedy. It's more like base it in the reality, at least for me, for Dory, she's always been the kind of like, not straight lace, but like, a, you know, a bit of the middleman, like keeping everything grounded, but the comedy mm-hmm. has to be able to fly off of that, you know? This idea of constructing that tone is so exciting. Again, with the, with the long form TV, like, it's so cool that you're saying it's when you guys watched the show that it kind of clicked, like what the tone was. Yeah. So you have to watch your own work. Um, I do kind of. Yeah. Because some actors do not like to. Yeah, I, I do. I do twice. <laughs> That's always my rule. I'll watch it once oh. and I hate it. Always, usually. <laughs> uh, mainly my performance. Uh, not hate it, but I'm just like really hard on myself and I'm looking at superficial things like how my chin looks and, you know, why that was not the right choice and they should have chosen the other take. And blah, blah, blah. I usually wait a little bit and then I'll watch it again. Usually that second time is with an audience. Mm. you know at a premiere or whatever and that's and then that's it and then I'm done but I always find I usually enjoy it a lot more the second time around because I'm out of my head I'm watching it as a piece and uh audience always helps that's what's hard with television is you never really get an audience um yeah but that you know but um but yeah that's usually my rule I mean if I don't like a piece sometimes I could just be like no I'm never seeing that and I just won't watch it. But um, things that I'm proud of and I worked really hard on and I have a feeling there's a chance it can be good, I, I watch it twice. Yeah, That is really cool that you have a policy about that. I think that's a really smart way of doing it. It sounds like something that you've earned through trial and error. Yes, definitely. Definitely through trial and error, for sure. <laughs> well, so speaking of tone, I have to ask you about being the Ricardos. Yes. Um, you, what is the trick to... to reciting Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Is there a different approach? I mean, just like memorizing weeks ahead of time. <laughs> Even sometimes <laughs> when I'd have not that much dialogue, I just, I would look over it just out of anxiety of getting a word wrong. You know, that, that shoot, looking back on it, we did some Q and A's in New York and hearing Nicole and Javier speak about it, you know, was refreshing because I was like, I kind of didn't know they were going through the same thing I was going through which was just this sense of a tightrope we were all walking on. You know, Aaron does not like to do sometimes more than one take. Um, Mm. You know, he would give us several, but um, it's like he likes to move fast. He doesn't give a lot of direction. And when he does, it's very specific. And so it's a bit of this like there's a, a frenzy, you know, this kind of like anxious energy the whole time which in a sense is always in his scripts, you know, it's, it's always like a time constraint. There's something happening and it's happening this week and it's happening now. And like, we all got to go. Um, mm. So looking back on it, when we see the final product, we're like, Oh, actually that really helped the performance. Cause we're all a little on edge, just getting scared about getting the lines. Right. You know? Um, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So it was a very different process for me. I'm, I'm definitely more of a like, let's talk about it. Let's rehearse. Let's get to know each other. Let's have a m- minute, mm. you know? And, First of all, this was also in COVID. So we like had no time to get to know each other. We're all in costumes and we're doing this like surreal, you know, Lucy. We're on the set of I Love Lucy. And it's uh, it was all kind of just like coming at us. And we're just like, all right, let's just go. Um, but yeah, you just got to be prepared and speak fast <laughs> and articulate. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I feel like it's, a, it's always a great point for especially actors who've never worked in film or TV to just know that you gotta you gotta be able to harness any kind of nervous energy, especially if things are moving fast. And chances are, things are moving very fast. Yes. 
So for being the Ricardos, there's not a lot of like, I wonder what the tone is. It's more like, just get it done. Just <laughs> say the words. Because the the tone is already there. Yeah. You know, like he he's he's very, um, he's aware of the story he wants to tell. And I wouldn't say it, it was uncollaborative. It, it definitely was, but it, it was just very different. You know, there's all different levels of, of collaboration on set. And, you know, this one's more of like, we all know Aaron Sorkin scripts famously. And mm-hmm. so all the actors are like, I'm honored to do this. But it's also refreshing to be like, I could do that. But then, you know, I think back on other movies I did, like this film Blaze, I did that Ethan Hawke directed. And there could not have been a more day and night experience, you know, that one. We're improvising. We're being loose. We're actually like having a drink and and we're cozying up and we're improvising stuff and feeling it out and doing rehearsals that blend into real life to create some kind of atmosphere, you know, whereas this was like there was no chit chat. You know, we're all yeah. like athletes almost. And it's not about one being better or worse. It's just like different styles. And I think as an actor, that's what's fun is you're always kind of up for the new adventure. You're like, well, what's this one going to be like? Like, I have no idea. Yeah. And it also speaks to why actors can't really have one set process that they can't get out of. Like, you have to be adaptable. You have to be adaptable. You have to be somewhat malleable, which is, I think, what somewhat gets frustrating for certain actors and actors who become creators and writers eventually is because sometimes they're like, I don't want to just be being adaptable to everybody else. You know, I like this thing and I want to, I want to make my own kind of set, my own style and that kind of thing. But, um, and as much as I do want to do that, I am like, I still love the newness of different projects. Love that. And how do you go about creating a real person? Um, this is always an interesting question, but I feel like when you're playing a real person, but not somebody who's like immediately iconically recognizable, like talk to me about how you went about researching the world of of Madeline Pugh and I guess paying homage to a real Hollywood trailblazer who I certainly didn't know anything about. Yeah. I mean, when I, I, I mean, I've watched I Love Lucy so much growing up and just in my life, I love it so much. And oh, cool. I, I always knew that there was one female writer just because the name and the credits. And I always thought that was so interesting because at that time there was like no female writers, you know, and not only a female writer, but she wrote one of the funniest shows of all time and successful, you know? So, um, you know, going back to that kind of like when this part comes to, when a part comes to you, there's a reason I was like, oh my God, I get to play like the coolest female writer, (laughs) you know, of the last decade. I mean, the last century. So I was like, I was so honored. Um, You know, I looked up lots of videos of her. There was a book, uh, I believe that she wrote about her and Bob that I heard about. But, you know, when I when I Skyped with Aaron for the role, he said, we're trying to make a painting, not a photograph. And that really stuck with me. I was just like, got it. Because it's like, it's one thing for, you know, Nicole's playing Lucille Ball. So, and, and Javier's playing Desi Arnaz. So they're, they're very well-known, iconic people who have very specific voices and the way they look and all these things. So that's like a whole other kind of preparation. But to play mm. someone like Madeline Pugh, who... Most people don't know what she looks like or how she carried herself back then. I don't think there's any footage of her, you know, mm. talking or moving or whatever when she was that age. So I was like, and then I, you read the script, you know, and I'm like, well, it's my job to to create my own Madeline Pugh that just is an homage and just uh, is like like a cap, you know, like tilting your cap to her essence, just being like she's a, s- a smart, fast talking, you know, girl who has to like keep up in this writer's room. And, and there's a scene that I have with, um, with Lucille and Nicole's character 
where I'm, it kind of gives the whole essence of the character I'm playing, where she's kind of challenging Lucy on a female uh, role, you know, what, how, how yeah. the character of Lucy, how, you know, what she's representing and that, you know, maybe she's, she's acting a little too infantile and, um, and she's waiting for permission from her husband. And I'm just like, yo, it's, it's just a, I don't say yo, but I say, um, <laughs> I'm like, this is just a, you know, advice from a different generation. And that whole scene really gave me this, all the structure I really needed. So even mm-hmm. though it was fun to do research and read about Madeline Pugh and look up photos of her and stuff, I was like, I'm not going to get lost in trying to mimic or find out what she was like back then. I just have to carry the strength of a, of a woman who would say this. You know, and stands yeah. behind that, and then that kind of just carried me, carried me through. Yeah, like the the clues are f- maybe first and foremost in the dialogue, but also maybe from the direction. Like if a director is saying this is a a painting and not a photograph, that's a big clue right there. Yes, totally. I also think it's a mistake for biopics in general. Like there's an impression that you are supposed to be creating a photograph, but it's just not possible. <laughs> so, as an actor, aren't you always making a, a painting? You know what? I mean, that metaphor, when he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, but it's true. Yeah. When are you ever making a photograph? I guess if you're doing some kind of biopic for like A&E, I don't know. You know, we're definitely always making paintings. We have to decide what they are, choose our own Mm. colors and make it specific and tell the story. And um, I think that's the freedom that we have. And, And, you know, there's some like old acting trope that's like there's no bad choices, just more or less interesting ones. And yeah, that's something I've always heard, which is kind of a weird one. But um, I think now too, it's like, there's so many opportunities to make stuff, you know, meaning you could like film something and just put it online. Like, you know, there's all these different kinds of tools that I think it's important to just like try and tell the truth, which as silly as that might sound, it's like, you know, a good painting you connect because there's some truth in it, even if it's of like a unicorn flying, you know, over the pot of the rainbow or whatever. It's like, there has to be some truth in it. And I think mm. that's all we're kind of trying to do is to click in somebody else, you know, who's watching like, Ooh, that feels like something I went through or like, Ooh, that reminds me of a dream I had, or that reminds me of something, you know? Yeah. And that's all you could try and go for. I don't think you could be too meticulous about it. I love that. And you really, you answered a question I was, I wanted to ask about Dory and, your characters in general, this this notion of relatable, it feels like you just answered it in terms of um, artists in general are just trying to go at a, at something honest, at a truth. Mm-hmm. And that is what then for the audience becomes relatable. Right. And you're not trying to be like, I'm going to guess what the audience wants. <laughs> this also goes back to auditioning. Yeah, no, you can't. I mean... I think it's the trust that we're in the collective unconscious, you know, uh, the trust that uh, as an actor, you're also human <laughs> and you have to pull from your resources to connect to other people. I think that's also, there's obviously many different types of actors, but if you meet actors, a lot of them are, are pretty, what's the word? Um, they, they're, well, not only are they usually pretty charming people that you could talk to and connect to, but they, they're, they're really in tune. You know, in, in the sense that, you know, they also are also big fuck ups and self-centered and all those kinds of things, too. But they're um, they're very I'm, I'm, I'm the word em, em, empathic, you know. Yeah. You know, sometimes dangerously. So like, they just yeah. like they want to know what you're going through. Oh, no. What happened to your brother? I'm so sorry. Like they're just like really feeling it. I remember I was at a dinner party once and I was talking to this 
this man who was a friend of mine's uh, father who I'd never met. And he was really sweet, kind of, you know, not a very reactionary face, you know, maybe from like a different state, just kind of like steady dude, you know, older guy. And I was talking to him and he, and he was telling me some kind of sad news, something about his wife or something about his house, something that, that did not go you know, well in his life. And my face dropped when he said it, you know, and I, from a smile to completely dropped. And I wasn't faking it. I was just listening to him, you know, fully, genuinely. And he was so thrown off. He was like, wow. He's like, you just switched so fast um, your face to listening to the story, you know. And I was like, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. But in a way, and again, like, you know, it's important not to be act as it wasn't acting. I was just like. I think that's an important tool when you're an actor is that you you genuinely care. You really want to know all these details, you know, and, and sometimes the curiosity, as I said, can be dangerous. But other times, like, I think that's the true spirit or the fun part about being an actor is you're just like excited to know. You're you're crazy curious about how somebody's feeling so much so that you want to embody it and kind of show it and be like, is it something like this? You know, and then people are like, yeah, actually, that was exactly (laughs) what it was like. A little different. I didn't do so much with my, you know, with my hands, but yeah, it was cool. And I'm like, right. Okay, great. And like that feels satisfying, you know, like to somehow create, recreate an image um, using your your body, you know. You reflect back, you reflect back something. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So cool. Oh my gosh. Alia, thank you so much. This is all so good. And I really feel like, uh, I feel like, um, nerdy actor to actor types and aspiring producers are going to get so much out of this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. Such wonderful, thoughtful questions. So I thank you. Of course. I have to ask you um, this, the couple questions that we ask everybody, which are also still in the nerdy actorly vein. Um, for example, what, what is one performance you think every actor should see and study and why? Oh boy. It's the big one. That's a big one. Um, I always feel like anything Samantha Morton does is worth watching and studying. Um, I wish I could be more, I mean, Morven Collar is a beautiful performance, but you know, I also think it's like, it's worth it to watch old movies, um, like older, like, you know, Turner classic movies, kind of that station. It's just like, it's always fun. I watched an old movie with like Betty Davis recently and, um, she was really young and she was like a real spitfire, you know, and it was like, it's definitely over the top compared to more naturalistic acting now, but there's something about her like gumption, you know, and just like her confidence and her movements that it's like, it, it's, it's important, I think, for actors to study other actors. And for us, the fun part of that is that our research is just watching movies. Um, so I think totally. it's important to uh, watch movies and know the actors that came before you. Because a lot of young actors don't know anybody from like 10 years ago sometimes. You're like, really? You don't know him from like the 90s? Really? Um, so yeah. I, I, I think it is. And I, I value knowing, uh, you know, people who came before me and the performances. I mean, I saw this movie also Born Yesterday, um, the original. Uh, I think it was the original. There might have been one before that. But it's with Judy Holiday. And I had an audition that I didn't get, but I watched that movie and her performance in particular as inspiration. I was just like, every beat of that timing, you know, comedically is so smart and so funny. And uh, it's not over the top stylized, like 50s acting either, you know, like the performance would sing today. Love that. 
Um, and speaking of auditions, I said I was going to ask you for your worst audition horror story. Do you do you have one that comes to mind? <laughs> yes, too many. Um, <laughs> I auditioned for an M. Night Shyamalan um, movie once. And sure. it was for, like, not even, like, a real character in it. You know, like, kind of like a just a, a girl in car or whatever. And I'm in the, the audition is, and I'm in the room doing it. I'm in a car and I look outside the window and I just see bodies hanging from trees. And my whole audition was just to react to bodies outside the window. And it no was dialogue. no dialogue. And it was so embarrassing. Cause I'm like supposed to be like in the backseat of the car and I'm just kind of like moving my body side to side. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm in a car. <laughs> And then I'm just supposed to look outside and just start like breaking down because I see bodies from trees. And I was just like, this is too much. That's really hard. Yeah. I was like, hire anybody. And if you had bodies outside of a window, I bet they do a good job. God, this is so great. Thank you so much, Alia. Um, You've covered so much advice, but is there any, um, we always ask to, if you could go back in time and give yourself younger, your younger self advice, what would that be? Just have fun, like have fun. <laughs> Don't take it so seriously. Like it's sure. gonna, it's gonna, you know, you're gonna keep doing it and just like really, really enjoy it as much as you can. It's kind of simple advice, but I remember um, this really brilliant actress who I won't say her name, but this older actress I've worked with once, and she said to me, she says, she said, "Don't take it all too seriously," and I remember being so offended when she said that to me. I was like, how could she? She thinks I'm a terrible actress. And she was like, I was such a big fan of hers, you know? But as I got older, I knew what she meant. You know, Mm -hmm. she wasn't insulting me. She wasn't being like, listen, kid, this isn't good for you. Like, you you should get out. She was like, just don't take it so seriously. Like, it's okay. You can have fun. (laughs) And actually, your performance will be better. The less, you know, take it seriously because you care about it and you respect it. Mm. But don't take yourself so seriously when you're doing it. And it'll really open things up for you a lot. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Gosh, thank you so much. This is all so great. Oh, thank you, Jack. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Rouse Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com, and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope, and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.